Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is now episode number 333. My name is Camden Busey. I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. We have another excellent episode lined up for you today. Let me introduce to you our panel. We have Jared Oliphant, who is a regional coordinator at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome back, Jared. It's good to have you once again. Thanks, Camden. Good to be on. We are very pleased to welcome back to the program as a panelist now for the very first time, although he's been a guest. We have the Reverend Dr. Craig Troxell, who is Senior Pastor of Bethel OPC in Wheaton, Illinois. He also teaches adjunct at Westminster Theological Seminary in the Systematic Theology Department. Welcome back, Craig. It's good to speak with you. Hello, Camden. It's good to be back. We're not too far from one another, but we're still connecting here on Skype. The O'Hare traffic is enough to keep us away from one another, I think, today. So <laughs> We're very pleased to uh, to have Craig on. Of course, Craig uh, has, has written and teaches quite a bit on ecclesiology. Uh, you can visit our archives to find our previous uh, conversation that we had with him on the Munis Triplex and on Christ's role in the church and his office. And Craig has a wonderful dissertation as well where he profiles four different uh, Presbyterians of the past and talks about their ecclesiological contributions. So we encourage you to find that. Contact us if you're uh, having trouble. We can perhaps get a copy into your hands. Today we're very pleased to welcome back to the program the Reverend Dr. Dave Garner, who is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Glenside. He's also Pastor of Teaching at Proclamation PCA in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Is that correct, Dave, Bryn Mawr? That is correct. You even said it correctly. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I'm all about the main line there. (laughs) Dave, it's wonderful to have you. Thanks for joining us again. It's great to be here again, Camden. Thank you. We are welcome, uh, welcoming Dave back to the program here to speak about his new booklet, How Can I Know for Sure? It's in the Christian Answers to Hard Questions series, which is published by Westminster Seminary Press in coordination and cooperation with PNR Publishing. A wonderful booklet here, just 32 pages, but it packs a big punch. And uh, all of these booklets in this series address very important subjects and questions for the church today. How Can I Know for Sure? Certainly something that all of us should should understand, and certainly something that a lot of young people, especially, struggle with. And we want to talk about that subject today and uh, let people know how they can know for sure how that's possible with our God and how He reveals Himself. But before we get into our main subject, let me mention that Christ the Center is listener-supported, and we do rely on the generous support of all of our listeners to help us produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. We love getting together and discussing theology. We love opening uh, new windows to our listeners so that they can hear about important subjects and grow in their faith. So help us support the church by visiting us online today at reformedforum.org slash donate. Uh, we really encourage you to sign up. Uh, we have a lot of uh, 5 and $10 a month uh, donors, and we really appreciate them. But we encourage you all just to submit your feedback. But if you're able, also visit us online at reformforum.org slash donate. We thank you so much for your support of everything you do for Reformed Forum and this particular program, Christ the Center. Well, uh, Dave, I must say, uh, we've, we very much appreciate this entire series of books, or booklets, I should say, from Westminster. We've spoken with uh, Brandon Crow about uh, the virgin birth. We have very soon uh, scheduled a discussion with Bill Edgar, uh, which will touch on the problem of evil and the origins of evil. Can you speak about this series in general and how it came about that you were asked to write this booklet on this very important subject? 
Well, for some time now, Camden, I, I know that our senior administration has been wanting to have some materials that are Westminster produced that would really seek to address foundational issues in people's lives in the pew and on the street. And I think this particular series, The Christian Answers to Hard Questions, seeks to provide a biblical, theological, confessional, um, really a foundation to get at some of those complex questions that people are asking. And this particular booklet that we're talking about, How Can I Know for Sure, is a, a booklet that really addresses questions behind the question, if I could put it that way. We all live by trust, we live by faith, and sometimes that is self-conscious, sometimes it is assumed, but the answers to our questions are only as good as the source of those answers, and this little booklet seeks to get at how can I have confidence to think rightly and live rightly, how can I be sure of anything? in this life and drives us really to God and his revelation. And that's what I'm seeking to address in this particular booklet. Yeah, excellent. Now, we did mention early on that Dave not only teaches at Westminster Seminary, but he's also pastor of teaching at Proclamation PCA. That's something the seminary very much values. Uh, it's important for scholars to be involved in the local church and to have a regular ministry in whatever form that takes, and even people who might not have a specific calling or installation at a local church, no doubt, are very involved. But Dave, how does this booklet and also this series really blend or or take advantage of the best of both, the academia, but also the practical hard questions uh, that people are really dealing with day in and day out? Well, I'd answer that two ways. Uh, first, I would say that the scriptures themselves lead us to addressing mm-hmm. this question. Yeah. And and so the, the question about certainty, about assurance, about the basis for knowledge itself is something that is not tangential to Scripture, but actually at its very core. And so the the first way I'd want to answer that is this matters because God has said that it matters. Mm -hmm. And and so that's the first thing I would say. But secondly, um, you know, there is just an inundation of information in this so-called information age And while questions of faith and knowledge have always been matters of discussion, debate uh, in in people's minds and hearts, um, I think it's elevated in some ways by the information overload that people are facing. And trying to weed through all of that, I find people in our congregation that um, often need to be reminded that they are not left to their own devices to try to navigate their lives and making decisions about family, about morality, about legal issues, um, about financial issues, that there is a, a place in which they can go to be confident that as they address these things, that they truly have the mind of Christ about them. And with that, I would say, you know, one of the ways in which I uh, began addressing this question was really actually putting some of these questions to people in the congregation. Um, One of the things I also did is when I was uh, doing an earlier draft of this booklet, 
I sent it to one of our college students who is in an Ivy League school, um, very academically rigorous, but also a school that force, has forced him to ask some pretty difficult questions of his own faith. Certainly. And, and so I actually put this before him, and we had some very healthy interchange and dialogue uh, about this booklet, and he was actually pretty helpful in, in helping me formulate some of the questions and the way in which I went about addressing them. Mm-hmm. Now, Craig, uh, you certainly have uh, been in the pastorate for for several years and no doubt have seen many different people struggle with some of life's ultimate questions and help them in many ways. Do you see a booklet like this as needed and necessary, and how would you use it, uh, if so, in your local church? I I think it's very necessary. I think especially as street postmodernism begins to have its effect upon our young people, um, just last week, I had a conversation with one of our, our seniors, a senior in high school, uh, who's just really struggling uh, with issues of epistemology. I introduced her to that, that idea and how we can know and how we can know that we know. And, and so I think, I think introducing to people the importance of how Scripture informs the mind and undergirds our faith and uh, the confidence that we can have in God's truth and His revelation – I think these are crucial issues. I think that's going to uh, continue to ramp up in the, in the years to come uh, because of just the, the, the way the climate is. And especially, like I said, with postmodernism, and our people aren't reading philosophy necessarily, but it is having its effect upon them, especially through mass media. Yeah. You know, I, I struggled with a lot of these questions in, in high school, and I wasn't equipped to answer them. And perhaps I wasn't, you know, being forthright in asking my questions, and that might be part of the problem, too. Sometimes young people aren't willing to ask the questions, and it's not just young people. Some people have been in the church for decades and maybe have some of these basic ultimate questions and, and don't really know whether they can trust their Bibles, but they're ashamed to ask these questions. But it wasn't uh, until much later that I, I came across um you know, by God's providence, uh, the writings of Cornelius Van Til, and he seemed to be answering some of the tough questions that I had, and they were compelling because they were from the Scriptures. And uh, his approach to things uh, really opened up uh, new worlds for me. You raise the question here of, of how really we can know anything, and you start to move into the, the question of philosophy. We've mentioned the postmodernism already. But one thing that you bring up here is rationalism and empiricism. What are those approaches uh, to life's basic questions, and how do they fall short in providing ultimate answers? Well, I, boy, I'm not, not sure we want to go all the way down the pathway of these, these complex philosophical systems. But just, you know, in some ways, I look at both rationalism and empiricism on a street level, that, that people think that they can just rely upon their own intellectual prowess um, to, to come up with answers to ultimate questions and try to do so. And even as they try, I think you've already highlighted one of the, 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 the realities that people face is as they depend upon their own intellect or even a, upon the intellects of others, they find themselves getting answers that simply do not ultimately satisfy. So on the one hand, there's an increasing level of confidence in the mind and yet, as the mind is relied upon in its own scope of reference, the answers increasingly become dissatisfying. So the, the rationalist uh, approach is just thinking we can think our way uh, as creatures to answers to questions that are out- actually 
uh, outside of our ability to answer, but necessarily need to be answered. Um, you know, the empiricist just says, well, if I can get enough experiences, that experiences will lead me to proper deduction. But, you know, how do we know whether we've had enough experiences and can I really experience everything enough to know that I can answer those questions? And are those experiences, even if I could have them all, will I interpret them correctly? And we could go on and on and on. And what we really find at the end of the day is, as I put it in this little booklet, I think, at the end of the day, what we have is the end of the day. There, there's, there's really no ultimate answers that will come from any sort of humanly derived philosophical approach. Dave, you, you also have a section just right after that um, uh, on religion. Um, can you clarify a little bit about maybe why you separated those sections? There's a philosophy section, then there's the religion section, and um, what you mean by that term for those who are just kind of looking at, at the term and wondering. Well, again, that's a complex issue, even in missiology, the debates on what is religion, what is culture, and what is the interface of culture and religion and philosophy I parsed these out somewhat because I do think some people believe that a philosophical approach is not a religious approach. I am certainly not saying that there is not a religious commitment associated with philosophy. In fact, I think if you read this booklet, you'd see that that's fairly clear. But what uh, the reason that I parsed them out as I did is that people do grow up with moral and religious contexts and that that particular religious commitment um, is, is something that has also sought in a some sort of a sophisticated, varying degrees of sophistication, I guess, uh, ways of answering ultimate moral and spiritual questions. And that um, honestly, at the end of the day, if if religion is something that is man-made and comes from the bottom up it is going to end up as defunct uh, with answers as is any sort of our religious, if it could be called that way, philosophical system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where does a biblical revelation come in then, and how is that distinguished from these other approaches, at least in terms of starting point and therefore sustainability, I suppose? Well, yeah, and you're really kind of tracking with the narrative of the booklet here, because both philosophy and religion, as I have framed them here, um, are really bottom-up approaches. And the distinction between philosophy and religion in that uh, sense of the term is exactly that, that revelation is something that comes from without it comes to us, it does not come from us. And that is not uh, merely an abstract principle, it is a decisive one. And Scripture speaks to us because it it is the voice of God to us. It is not the inventions or machinations of man. It is actually God's word to us that speaks into our immediate contexts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this revelation is not just merely a book. It is a book. It is his word that's breathed out, but it's also something that has been given and implanted to all people. Right. right. So opposed to, the, you know, the theory of John Locke, for instance, we actually have uh, knowledge of God based into who we are because we're created in his image. What does that mean for 
this basic question, how can I know for sure? What does it mean to be made yeah. in the image of God, and how does that color or, or provide a character to this question? Yeah, it's a great point. Well, you know, and historically in theology, we have distinguished between general and special revelation. And one of the things, and not only in Romans 1, but marvelously and richly articulated, is the accountability of all mankind of all time because of that very fact that you've just expressed. There is no thought as Paul will argue in Romans 1, that occurs without a self-conscious awareness of the one true God. Even even a self-proclaimed atheist is actually seeking to suppress the knowledge of God by denying the very existence of the one he knows exists. And and so there is a a whole... uh, argument throughout the pages of Scripture that everyone is accountable to this God because God has made himself known. And that knowledge is a knowledge that is not redemptive, but it is a a knowledge that makes us culpable. It's a knowledge that makes us accountable before God. And one of the important features of this is that absolutely every one of us knows it. And those, uh, that knowledge is, is actually something that ought to drive us to our knees, pleading for mercy. And this is where we find the rich treasures of special revelation in God's Word, disclosing to us that this Creator is also Redeemer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, part of this discussion, I... In the background of what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is um, that general revelation and special revelation obviously go hand in hand. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just say a quick word about how you understand ge- general revelation as revealing God and the properties. So I have in mind, obviously, Van Til's <laughs> article from yeah. the Infallible Word. Um, do you think that's, that's relevant to what we're discussing here in terms of the properties of general revelation? Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, I I think one of the things that I would just say in response to that, it is not Paul's argument that we just have a notion of some sense of some God, but that actually that general revelation, to borrow Van Til's language, is perspicuous as is special revelation. It is sufficiently clear to reveal the one true God. What is important then for us to realize is that our accountability, again, is not an abstract accountability. It is a covenantal one, that we are accountable to the one true God. And Scripture reveals to us that the God that we already know and seek to suppress uh, that knowledge is the same God that we uh, know through general revelation, but the only way in which we will come to receive his mercy is by receiving him as the Redeemer through his Son, Jesus Christ, that special revelation richly articulates for us. Well, let me go two steps back, because I think David said something that was very important, um, and I like the way he put it, about the decisive principle of the way in which uh, God speaks to us um, And the way this really juxtaposes the Christian faith against all world religions and against philosophy 
And it's the same point that's made in the Westminster Confession of Faith about our only hope for a relationship with God is the fact that he voluntarily condescends to us. And, and it tracks in a parallel way with, um, with what we're talking about here. And, and, it's, and it's seen in a couple different ways in Scripture. And I think it's just so important, like in Exodus 34, 5 through 7, when the Lord is revealing himself to Moses and to Israel, it says that the Lord descended and stood with him there, stood with Moses there. And he descended in the cloud, which bespeaks his glory, but he descended. Uh, it's an act of condescension, and that the only hope for Israel is that God would come down to them mm-hmm. and reveal himself to them and speak to them, even as he comes down to address their sin, to forgive that sin, etc. I think you see the same thing in the Beatitudes, that if we look within, like world religions, what we see is that we're impoverished, so we're poor in spirit. We mourn what we find there. We find ourselves meek, and therefore we're driven out of ourselves to seek that which we cannot provide for ourselves. And so we hunger and thirst for righteousness, which we cannot produce in ourselves. So there's a number of ways in which I think the Scripture underlines uh, this, as David put it, this decisive principle, what distinguishes the Christian faith from everything else is God speaking to us, God coming down to us, not our working way, our way up to him, not our inventing him out of our own imagination, our not trying to merit him, but rather he is coming down to us in grace. And I think that's such an important idea. So I was, I was glad he touched upon that. Yeah. Yeah, I would wholly echo that, Craig, that's well put. And I think that particular paradigm uh, that saving knowledge and actually true knowledge is going to come from God. It will not come from us is a, is what distinguishes what we would to borrow in uh, the, the, the term that Craig put earlier, a, a revelational epistemology from every other false, false form of an epistemology, that it is knowledge that comes to us from the condescending, accommodating work of God in speaking to us, even as Calvin wonderfully puts it, like a nanny bending over and speaking to a child in words that he or she can understand. I'm so glad that you included a section that asks um, about the uniqueness of the Bible, because you mentioned a college student and and what he or she may be studying, but um, there was a class when I was in college, and this was at an evangelical Christian college, um, that was the Bible is narrative. And literally the, the professor would say, in this class, we're going to treat the Bible as any other book. Um, and it, so it was it was operating from a, a particular um, standpoint and, and its approach to Scripture, obviously. But um, can you talk a little bit about why you included that section and, and what's going on there with um, how you even answer that question? Yeah. Well, narrative theology has gained a lot of traction in recent years. And while there is, it is surely the case that the Scriptures are a history of redemption, um, the book of Uh, the Bible as a whole, is a covenantal narrative. It is a—we cannot remove the fact that because it is narrative does not mean it's not authoritative. And it's surely also an overstatement to say that all the Bible is narrative. Uh, You know, that that 
is, uh, is not faithful to the text, but it is surely the case that over the course of redemptive history, God has revealed himself in diverse ways, in diverse manners, at various, uh, to, to, to uh, our, our forefathers, as Hebrews 1 puts it. And, and so there is a narrative, but that narrative is not a humanly contrived narrative. And as I put it in this little booklet, and, and surely borrowing directly from Peter's language, that no word of prophecy is, uh, is one of human interpretation. It's not as though the prophets watched what God did and said, wow, was that cool? Let me write that down. <laughs> uh, um, it, it was that the Spirit actually led the prophets to write down exactly what God wanted it down, and so that the words of the prophets inscripturated are truly the word of God. God and not the word of man. And I think the the whole narrative theology approach, the narrative approach, has in some cases explicitly, in other cases implicitly, led people to see the Bible, as you put it, as just some other history book, that we use the tools of historical, grammatical interpretation and say we must treat the Bible like any other book. Well, that is not the case if the Bible is not like any other book. And if we actually treat the Bible as it claims, we will never treat it as any other book because it is indeed the Word of God. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit carried these men along uh, in terms of writing the very words of God, and Paul talks about that word being breathed out, theopneustos. What role do humans play in creating the Bible? And how is that even distinguished from, you know, other religions and their holy scriptures? Well, you, all of you would probably remember Warfield's treatment of, of 2 Timothy 3 and his, his treatment really of, of this whole concept, uh, what he describes as concursus, um, of, of the human and divine author. You know, it's interesting, Scripture does not give us a, a detailed look at the, the role of, of the human author over against the role of the divine author. Um, it is surely the case that Paul's letters reflect Paul, that Peter's letters reflect, reflect Peter, uh, etc., and yet, um, what we find Scripture's emphasis to be is that the process is not what is emphasized, but the product itself. Even the the passive verbal adjective that you've just described of theopneustos in Second Timothy three discloses that what is in view is is the product itself is the Word of God. And so, while many today would want to re- reduce this debate to some, some notion that uh, we are missing the point because what is indeed the case is the dynamism of the Bible, that in some way or another we have an existential encounter with the Bible and the Spirit takes human words and, and makes them divine to us in that encounter uh, vis-a-vis Bart. Um, that what is really the case is that the Spirit does not change the human word and make it mighty. He actually illumines us to what the word actually is, so that we see it for what it is, rather than him changing the word um, in us. 
if I could put it that way. And so I think it's really important to note that theopneustos means that the word itself is God-breathed. It is breathed out. Um, I, I tell my students, and of course I'm not the first one to do so, but I tell my students that we can properly speak of the Bible not just as inspired, but actually expired. That, right, it is, right. that it is that it is breathed out. Now, by that, of course, I don't mean that it no longer has value. What I mean is by that expression that it is a an ex-breathing. It is an out-breathing that Scripture is. It is the very Word of God in Scripturated. You you brought up Bart and uh, and I don't think your book gets into this so much, but. In terms of, you know, Bart makes a confusion about how we understand the Bible as the Word of God um, and the, the experience of that. But perhaps we could, you could address the, the, the positive side to this about the role of the Holy Spirit in, um, in persuasion and especially yeah. in the epistemology of belief. Well, and that's really what you're asking, Craig, gets to the heart of this little booklet, because if the Spirit were not to change us, we would still be left to our own interpretive devices, and we would be left on our own to make the determination as to whether or not the Bible is trustworthy. And, you know, it is so wonderfully rich, the way in which Scripture from start to finish shows the inexorable connection between the living Spirit of God and the living power of the Spirit's Word. And one of the features of confidence, and I would argue actually the ultimate place existentially of confidence, is that the Spirit never acts apart from His revealed Word. In fact, the Spirit does not divide against Himself that way. What He does is that He allows us to see Scripture for what it really is. And this ministry that uh, John Murray even actually describes as the noetic side of regeneration, what that means in, in lay language is that the Spirit's illumining work um, enlightening work in us is what God does when he brings us from darkness to light, from death to life, from wrath to grace, that in our spirit-wrought um, faith that we are now in a place and where we can hear the word of God and know its redemptive and Christ-centered truth and discover a confidence that actually surpasses rationalism, that surpasses empiricism. It is not unrational. It is not, does not lack experience. It is supra-rational. And it is something that the Spirit creates a confidence in us that his word is absolutely trustworthy and reliable. The ministry of the Spirit is vital. He is alive, and he takes his word, his true word, and shows us its truthfulness. Amen. That's so helpful. It's so important to impress this teaching upon the people that have these questions, and also for those who are confident and, and understand that we can have full confidence in Scripture it's important to remind ourselves of these things yes. uh, because we are weak and frail, but the Holy Spirit does build us up and we need to be reminded of his witness and testimony to our hearts in, in its manifold form, not only right. 
testifying that the word is true, but also building us up, giving us strength, assuring our hearts, helping us to persevere. Uh, The Holy Spirit has such a wonderful uh, ministry in our lives, but many times uh, people seem to have more of a bi-unity view rather than a Trinitarian view. Very much so. (laughs) Well, I would also say that there is a, you know, more broadly in the church around the world, there are some that see themselves as Bible Christians and others see themselves as spirit-filled Christians. Yeah. And, and that is a, an absolute false dichotomy. To, to be a person that is led by the Spirit is to be a person that is consumed with Scripture. And to be one that is consumed with Scripture will be one who is led by the Spirit of truth. And, and this idea that to love the Word is to, to suppress the Spirit is completely antithetical both to the Spirit and the Word itself. Dave, I was wondering, this is, again, a little bit tangential from um, what we're discussing explicitly here, but um, just the the topic in general that we're speaking of, how can we know for sure? Um, I've had a lot of experiences with people who are believers, actually, who have the Bible, but um, want something more in trying to guess the will of God, to put it one way. Um, they are, they're looking at decisions in their life, um, usually big decisions, but even small decisions, and there's an uncertainty about it because some of them actually kind of um, maybe misunderstand God's will as something that they have to kind of predict or or get access to. Can you talk a little bit about, does that fit in at all in this discussion, and um, how should we think of God's will? Yeah, boy, great, great questions of both theological and, and, and pastoral significance. I, I think the maybe the first way that I would I would say it is uh, to respond to one particular phrase that you made in your opening comment that see people are looking for something more um, and, and that there is uh, I think for a lot of reasons in people's minds this idea that the Bible only takes us so far that if we're really spiritual we need an experience of some kind or that our idea of spirit leading is, is somehow um, goes beyond Scripture, that if we're really led by the Spirit, we actually kind of move beyond the Bible. Um, that there's, it's almost a Gnostic sort of superiority that develops, that those that are really spiritual, yeah, they love the Bible, but where their real spiritual vitality comes is the way in which the Spirit privately, mystically leads them and, and draws them to um, a higher plane. And I think that rhetoric, uh, while not always explicit, I think it is prevalent. And I, p- part of the way I would say this is, you know, the Bible does not answer every one of our questions. It does not um, address explicitly what Jared should do for his vocation. It does not tell uh, us um, which place we should go for vacation or even if we should go on vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, it does not tell me whether to buy a Honda Civic or a Chevrolet Impala, if they still make those. <laughs> I think they um, do, yeah. 
Um, you know, it, the, the Bible doesn't answer those questions. And it is, it is striking to me somehow, and part of this is that people, um, you know, we're, we're wired differently. Some of this pastorally, I would say, is that people uh, very often describe emotion and this strong sense of emotion as the Spirit's leading. And some people are more emotive than others, so those who are more emotive are sometimes viewed as more spiritual. Sometimes they view themselves as more spiritual. And I think disabusing folks of the idea that the true spirituality is an emotional high will come quickly to bear when we realize that one of the, the, the ministries of the Spirit in Scripture is actually to convict us of sin. And and that sometimes when we are being led by the Spirit, we don't really feel that great. Um, yeah. and, and that uh, one of the evidences of the Spirit's ministry in the people of God is not always warm and fuzzy feelings. Um, it is actually leading us to conviction, leading us to repentance. And uh, that comes from the Spirit's ministry with His Word, His Word preached, His, his Word studied, um, and then his word applied. So I guess, Jared, it's a long way of saying what you're raising is a huge issue. And as it relates to, you know, those more mundane sorts of questions, I think sometimes we're wanting some sort of experience that can lead us to strong sense of, uh, of an opinion about these things, when in fact, that if we are faithfully studying God's Word, sitting under its authority, and seeking everything within our power to obey it. I think Hebrews chapter um, chapter 5 is very, very important here. The last verses, 11 to 14. In fact, let me just read verse 14 here. The sure. solid food is for the mature, but for those who have, I'm sorry, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So how do I become a more discerning person? I do so by growing in my obedience to God's revealed word. And so the answers to ultimate questions come through God's word. The the answers to more tertiary questions or more mundane ones when I am walking in obedience, growing in discernment, and obeying God's word, then I am free to make those decisions and do not need to have some sort of experience or interpretation of providence to lead me to a, a surety in those decisions. That's really good. You know, Dave, we keep coming back to the issue of authority, and we keep coming back to the fact that how can we know for sure? It's because God tells us, <laughs> yep. and He uh, testifies to us by His Holy Spirit and also through His revelation. Um, you address in the booklet the issue of circularity, which comes up quite often when we discuss yep. this topic, because people say, well, how can I know that the Bible is true? And you say, well, because the Bible says it's true. Right. And they'll say, well, why can't I just write my own document and say that this is the infallible word? Why doesn't that work? How do we get away from these uh, viciously narrow uh, conceptions of circularity? And also, why is circularity really an important thing, oddly enough, right. in this particular scenario? Yeah, that, that circularity issue comes up, as you put it, a lot. And, uh, yeah, 
why do I believe God's word is God's word? Because God's word says God's word is God's word. Right. Boy, that's that's convincing, huh? Jesus uh, loves me. This I know because yeah, the yeah. Bible tells me so. Yeah, exactly. And yet, I, you know, we could go long and deep into these epistemological circle questions. But I think what we need to realize is that all human reasoning is circular. It, it all starts somewhere. And that ultimate starting place, as Romans 1 bears largely here, um, because to be a self-conscious human being is to know that God is, and to know Him requires then that I respond in my thinking accordingly. And, and so the, the issue of circularity is this. Am I going to begin with self? If I do, then I will end with myself, and I am trapped in a vicious circularity. But there is a blessed circularity when I begin with where I know I must begin, and that is relying upon, trusting on the Creator Himself to speak clearly, authoritatively. And this is something that honestly... It is not a vicious circularity to trust in God's Word. It is a freeing circularity because I am depending upon God first because He is the only reliable interpreter of all things. And so this is a resting circularity. It's a place of comfort and of, of confidence, whereas human philosophy, human religion, those are all circles that are hermetically sealed in the sinful state of man's heart. And that is, that is where the, the viciousness resides. In the redemptive revelation of God comes the joyous and blessed circularity of relying upon God having spoken first. In chapter 18 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we have a, a section titled, Of the Assurance of Grace and Salvation. It's a related subject. It's definitely not precisely the same as how can I know for sure, but nevertheless, they come back to the issue of God's testimony and his own authority. One thing that might strike people as a little bit um, maybe of an overreach, now, not when you understand what they mean, but when you first read the Westminster Confession of Faith, you might be taken aback by the use of the language infallible assurance. Of faith. Yeah. And they speak very strongly about the type of assurance that you can have of grace and salvation. Uh, section 2 says, This certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. And then it continues to describe the fact that this infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but nevertheless is something that believers can have. Now, that, that word infallible, how does that drive us back to the fact that this assurance, or even the answer to the question, how can I know for sure? Mm-hmm. Why does that drive us away from ourself? And, and why is it so important to emphasize that the fact that the infallibility and the certainty of the answers to these questions cannot be found in man, man alone? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of ways we could address this. I love this language on assurance in, in chapter 18 of the Confession. I, I think, you know, obviously we need to take that in the context of, of addressing the Roman Catholic 
churches exactly. declaring that assurance is anathema. And this is something that the the Westminster divines were very self-conscious of, the need to um, describe the, the real um, grounds for assurance are not going to be coming from ourselves or even from a, uh, a an institution of the so-called kingdom of God as the Roman yeah. church saw itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but to... Uh, or sees itself, um, but but that the true assurance, this infallible certainty, which I know Van Til, you know, loved to describe this this absolute certainty of the Christian faith. We can be absolutely certain, and and the reason for that certainty is because we are relying upon the one who is certainty himself, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and I, I think that that's where th- this uh, connects very well with. Um, the the nature of Scripture in in the first chapter of the Westminster Confession that the truthfulness of Scripture is grounded in the one who is truth himself, and so the author of Scripture is what makes Scripture's truthfulness unequivocal. Unequivocal. So so what I would say here is that in in the same fashion. What we have by the outpouring of the Spirit of adoption, borrowing from Romans eight. Um, is is that that witness of the Spirit with our spirits is something that takes the Word of God and seals it within us, um, that it, it goes beyond just mere conjecture. It goes beyond that sort of rational confidence that I have the syllogism in order, um, but that it actually takes us to a place that goes beyond rationality, and that is precisely because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of God. I'm concerned about how we apply this uh, to the people in our in our pews, the people in our lives asking these questions. So maybe I could. And there's t- there's two questions I have, and he- here's the first question: If if it was the error of modernism to overstate the mind, it's probably the error of postmodernism to understate the mind. And I even have a, a college professor who's, who teaches on this pretty explicitly in his books and his classrooms that, you know, under, kind of relativizes the value of the mind. And we need to be more multisensory. And especially the Reform camp is, is way too rational in its approach to the faith. And uh, he says we need to rely more on the heart. I think he misunderstands the heart personally. But as we, as we think upon this, the importance of this doctrine of, of knowing um, and our Reformed epistemology, how should we apply this in our day to people that are bringing these questions uh, about, yeah, yeah, okay, you say that, but the mind's really of relative value? Wow, Craig, that's a big, big question. I, I, boy, I think the short way that I would try to get at that is simply to say that, you know, we are not uh, properly understood, we are speaking of a sweet blend of heart and mind here. Right. And even even the way in which we, we cannot speak of the mind without the heart. I, I think biblically that is, uh, is just untenable. I would say also the opposite is true. We cannot speak about the heart without the mind. You know, there, there is, and I think it's very much along the ilk of what you're describing here, this notion, you know, I just want to love Jesus. Well, what Jesus do you love? Um, and what does it mean to love Jesus without having a, a, a clearly expressed reference 
for that that Jesus whom you describe that you that you love. Who is he? Is he the Jesus of your own making, or is he the Jesus of the revealed Word of God? And while there is a, a I would say a a boy, just an overwhelming tide of emphasis that in this postmodern age that thinking, feeling, everything has been relativized. If God is absolute, as Scripture makes him to be, then what we know of him and his condescending uh, self-manifestation has got to have something to do with our minds, hearts, and souls, our bodies, everything. This is where theology, doxology, and orthopraxy come together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure that's adequate to answer your question in full, but I just think it's a false dichotomy to claim that we ought to be about the heart more, about the senses more, and not about the mind. I don't think that's a fair representation of a creaturely dependence upon the God who has revealed himself. Yeah, I, I agree with you, David. I, I, I actually think that the, in the Old Testament in particular, uh, lave and the vav, the, the Hebrew word for yes. the heart, is is more often rightly rendered the mind, yes, uh, dealing with the rational person. But I, I have a follow up question. Um, so, if there are those that overstate the mind, those that understate the mind, I think the problem that a lot of people in our pews have is to disregard the mind um, in its questions with these things. So, what I find is that by the time I get to a person who's really struggling with their faith, it's it's often because they felt sheepish or they felt that. It was unspiritual for them to ask questions. They feel like doubt is something that is always wrong and bad. And that raising these questions about how, Pastor, can I really know this is true, is in one sense, these are questions that we really want to encourage and that we want to have you know, intellectual integrity in, 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 the, uh, in the church. And so we don't want to encourage people to trivialize or to disregard the importance of these questions. How would you apply what we're talking about to that person. Well, you know, I would actually add a, a, another factor to that question that I think complicates things. I think the, the whole academic world, uh, and I don't mean that just in the sphere of theology and biblical studies, but I think more broadly, is this growing notion of what is, I think, very falsely called an epistemological modesty. Um, and, and that is that to claim to be certain about anything is inherently arrogant. Right. So I think I think part of what this generation, uh, and I would even say even into the older folks in our pews that have pro- perhaps unwittingly been been affected by this, is that to speak with certainty about anything and to to not maintain provisionality about our thinking is a posture of arrogance. And I, I think part of what we need to do is helping folks to realize, you know what, yes, we have questions, but yes, there are answers. And sometimes the answers, and I think this is only fair, Scripture does not speak about everything, but as I even put it in this little booklet, it does speak to everything. And the way in which we even go about addressing those complex issues of, of, of doubt, um, they are issues that do not stem from some sort of uh, abstract uh, life. These are real people, real covenant keepers and covenant breakers, 
that have experiences in their lives that have shaped the way in which they even interpret the data that comes to them. And they need to be uh, exhorted that their, their intellectual questions are also moral questions. And that bringing these things together can only be done properly by seeing what God's Word says, not only about Him and about redemption, but what He says about us. And I think part of the pastoral way to help people navigate these things is to realize that sometimes the questions that we're asking, we're actually asking out of motives of rebellion rather than genuine uh, desire for faith. And all of this comes together on a case-by-case basis but I do think all these factors affect people in the way in which they think or do not think about these things and articulate and do not articulate them. Thank you. That's very insightful, Dave. I appreciate the, the reminders and also the encouragement here. This is a wonderful booklet. I do encourage people to pick this up. It's uh, titled, How Can I Know for Sure? It's, again, in the Christian Answers to Hard Questions series published by Westminster Seminary Press in cooperation with PNR Publishing. You can find copies of this online, uh, well, I mean, through WTSbooks.com, and we encourage you to, to order several and hand these out. I know I have a copy I'm going to hand out to somebody myself, and um, th- these are very useful tools not only for building us up, ourselves in our faith, but also for handing to others, especially those who are having deep and and difficult questions about uh, the very nature of the Scripture and and how we can know uh, things of ultimate nature. Dave, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and we'd love to have you back anytime you got something to talk about. (laughs) Okay, well, thanks for having (laughs) me today. Uh, Dave, how are things going with the PCA and the various uh, committees you're on? Any updates on uh, your missiological efforts and uh, all that stuff? I, yeah, I've been chairing a committee in the PCA for the last three years on uh, what is called insider movements, and we are presenting our uh, report this June to the Assembly, and uh, you can actually find that report online on the PCA's website. Um, but yeah, that, that uh, Lord willing, we will be wrapping that up, and the Assembly will vote on our recommendations, and Lord willing, we will be... Um, Really, I hope, helping not only the PCA but the church worldwide with these questions uh, related to theology and missions. And if I might say, I I don't mean that arrogantly in any sense, uh, but what has happened over the course of the last three years of this project is because of the influence of insider movements around the world, nationals around the world are, are knowing that the PCA is addressing this, are begging for us to speak with clarity so that we can help them in their context address these very, um, very, very difficult and complex but serious issues in the life of the church around the world. Absolutely. Well, stay in touch with, with the PCA there and with that committee. Of course, you can find uh, Dave's previous uh, appearances on Christ the Center, in which they did talk about the insider movement. He also, many, many years ago, at least in internet time, it was ancient, uh, talked yeah. about the uh, his uh, dissertation on adoption, which is uh, thoroughly insightful and uh, interesting. So you can find uh, those episodes in the archives. Uh, we do also want to thank Jared and Craig for joining us. You can find uh, Jared online at wts.edu. He also uh, writes and blogs at his own uh, blog, but in these last days, uh, wordpress.com as well 
well as at reformedforum.org. You can find Craig's church online, Bethel OPC in Wheaton. It is at BethelOPC.org. And of course, we're online at reformedforum.org. We encourage you to visit us there, and you can also get in touch with us either by email, mail at reformedforum.org, or you can tweet us at reformedforum. We love hearing from you and love getting your feedback, and uh, we're hoping to have some uh, great new things coming up on the website, uh, perhaps some short videos and things uh, of that nature in the the very uh, near future. So we encourage you to visit us online and let us know how we're doing. We want to thank everybody for listening. We hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.